Welcome to the podcast of the Hulbert Center for Southwest Studies at Colorado College. My name is Santiago Ivan Guerra, and I am the WM Keck Director of the Hulbert Center for Southwest Studies. First, I'd like to acknowledge the indigenous peoples and ancestors who lived and thrived on the lands where Colorado College and the Hulbert Center is located, particularly the Apache, Arapaho, Comanche, Cheyenne, and the Ute, on whose unceded territories Colorado College was founded. We sit in the shadow of Taba, the Sun Mountain, so named by our Ute relatives. We extend our greeting to all of our relatives in Indian country, but particularly to those in the southwestern United States, the U.S.-Mexico border, and northern Mexico. At the Hulbert Center, we stand and fight for racial justice. We believe that black lives matter, that no human is illegal, that we must honor the lives of missing and murdered indigenous women. We stand in solidarity with those that are marginalized, with women of color, with the LGBTQ community, with immigrants, and with all those who believe that our struggles bring us together in solidarity. Thank you, and stay tuned. Hey everyone, my name is Sarah Katsev and I'm the paraprofessional this year at the Holbert Center of Southwest Studies. Today I'm so excited to be here with CJ Alvarez, Assistant Professor of Mexican-American and Latina and Latino Studies at University of Texas at Austin. He researches and teaches environmental history and history of the U.S.-Mexico border. His book, Borderland, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, came out in October of 2019. Hi, CJ. Hi, Sarah. Um, so I guess I'll just jump right into the questions, uh, if that's good with you. Um, so my first question is, what got you interested in the U.S.-Mexico border and the Southwest? Well, I think the easiest answer to that question is the fact that I grew up there. I, I grew up down in Las Cruces, New Mexico, so not on the border, but definitely within the border zone mm-hmm. and squarely in the, you know, in the in the in the belly of what we call the southwest i think the probably the more accurate answer is what got me interested in the border in the southwest is the fact that i left i Mm. went to california for college and then uh grad school in in boston and chicago and each one of those places has a a very distinct cultural history and a very distinct environmental history and with that perspective of having lived in these other unique places for so long it it made me much more interested in where i came from because i saw it with these new eyes and on top of that it kind of made me desperate to get back to the southwest (laughs) and and the border region because those were not my natural habitats out there by any stretch of the imagination And, and right now i find myself in texas which eh, you know is is close enough uh for the time being the the way i think about it i love dan flores's um description of texas as the south's west which is it's kind of part the u.s south part southwest and and american west and so it's closer than i've gotten in the past 20 years traveling around going to school so um so i'll take it Mm -hmm. so you're you're from like right right on the border basically yeah i'm from uh, i'm from las cruces which is uh about an hour north of the border so uh, at the 
on the tri borders of uh, of far west Texas, southern New Mexico, and then and Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think it makes a big difference that there aren't. I'm not from a border town per se because the border towns are you know actually on the border and they they often have or they pretty much always have sister cities on on both sides mm-hmm. that have a common history oftentimes and Las Cruces is not like that and so even growing up there it was um it gave me a kind of insider outsider perspective because I was close enough to the border to to feel the dynamics of the border region but I was far enough away to not be to have a, a kind of a, a more of a I don't want to say objective because who knows what that is, but uh, mm-hmm. but more of a remove that allowed me to to think about it outside of the immediacy of the border town dynamics. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I guess going to my next question, uh, more on the border. Uh, so is a border something that's always determined by the state? And I guess before the Rio Grande was what marked the border, um, which... I, get, I was kind of unsure of if that was the 1830s or was it like the 1848, like there's like a treaty or something. Um, but anyways, before the Rio Grande was what marked the border, did it act as a border in other senses? I mean, you talked about like the sister cities. You know, I think this is such a fascinating question that, and I've become really preoccupied with the difference between political borders, which are largely abstract between states, between countries, um, and environmental borders, which are in many ways much more real, the, the borders of ecosystems and ecoregions. And I would say that before the, the river became the political border, which it officially did in 1848, you're right. Okay. It functioned in some ways like the opposite of a border. It worked more like a magnet. And what I mean by that is a, a huge percentage of the river passes through the desert, the Chihuahuan Desert. It starts in the in the high country, obviously up in the southern Rockies, and then it runs down, enters the desert where it runs for hundreds of miles, and then it goes down into the delta, which is much wetter down, down by the Gulf. And so in the desert, and this has been true not just in the border region, or what we call the border region, but throughout history, People and animals and certain kinds of plants rely on these rare sources of water to to survive. And so what you found for really millennia going back to Native America, people clustering around the river on both sides um, and all around it, because that was where they could grow what crops they they grew that was where they could find fish that's where they could uh obviously drink drink the water to to sustain themselves and so one of the things that is unusual about the transformation of the of the river into a political border is that it it uh it created this very artificial sense of of polarization whereas for most of its history it's actually gathered people to it as opposed to differentiated them from one another. Mm-hmm. All right, so then I guess going off of that, how does the building of the wall affect the many different environments and ecosystems on either side? 
Well, so for, so first of all, I think it's important to point out that we already have a, have a wall on the border and, and that we've had or at least a, a piecemeal system of durable barriers that we kind of call the fence. We call some people call it the wall, but it's, it's kind of this this mishmash of, of almost two dozen different styles of, of construction barriers designed to prevent people from crossing or to impede people from crossing and, and vehicles as well. So we, we already have this huge police infrastructure on the border, most of which was built between 2006 and 2009. And if the question then is, what does this do to the environments? The next question is what kinds of environments? So I differentiate between different kinds of environmental lenses and so for, for the sake of simplicity here, we'll just narrow it down to animals, plants, and water. In the case of, um, in the case of animals, you find some of the biggest kinds of disruptions or potential disruptions. And this is because animals move from place to place. And, and because the political border reified by the physical construction really has nothing to do with the environmental borders of, of ecosystems. You find species like Sonoran pronghorns, bighorn sheep, even pygmy owls, black bears um, that go from the mountains to the mountains through the desert at risk because they're used to crossing what is the border and they don't care if it's, if it's the border, but they do care if they can't cross a highway or if they can't cross a, a, a fence. So that creates enormous disruption for certain species. Plants are a little bit different. And in most cases, they continue to exist in relative, relatively uninterrupted. And this was the point, if you look at the cover of my book, Borderland, Border Water, you can see that's kind of the point of the cover image, which I took between New Mexico and Chihuahua to emphasize how the landscape looks identical on both sides but then there's this very thin strip where the where the border was um was drawn and then where these vehicle barriers were erected but in the in the vast sort of floral uh landscape it's mostly creosote in there it, it's it's really pretty insignificant and then you think about water and in the environmental context of water, you find very serious and large scale alterations. And most of those don't really have to do with the with the wall at all or the fence at all. They have to do with bilateral hydraulic engineering projects. But what you do see in parts of, say, southern Arizona and northern Sonora is uh, is is new flooding problems, because when the monsoons come through the desert it produces a lot of water you know those are those people from the you know the southwest the, the desert southwest especially know just how horrifying and dangerous these flash floods can be and when you have a wall in a in a canyon like you do in uh nogales uh it, it basically has the it acts like a dam which is a big problem it, it traps mm -hmm. debris and then it, it builds up water on both sides and they've had some really terrible flooding problems there. And so it's not so much um, affecting the broader, like the broader ecosystem, but it's having 
really serious effects on very in very local contexts for for the people living in these border towns that are bisected by big fences. Wow, yeah. Um, and is some so is some of your research about how those like those projects that cause these little things to happen, um, then like I guess kind of have all these unintended consequences or no i I'm, I'm most of my research concerns just it tries to trace the history of how these big construction projects came into being and there are some great journalists though who worked on on border water issues there's a great series in um in the austin uh, observer in partnership with i think quartz media and it was this multi-part series about water and, and the and the border which i recommend to anyone and you could, I don't know, I, I'm blanking on the exact name, but you can drop the link in wherever you, wherever you want. I'll send that to you and people can check that That's out. Right. But, uh, but there's a lot of great journalists working on these, these problems on the day-to-day -day level. And what I hope my book right. is able to do is for people who are interested in like a, a much deeper history of, of these kinds of things can, can look to it to figure out where all this stuff came from and the broader context of, of where these big border construction projects came from, not just the border fence of today, but all sorts of other construction projects as well. Right, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on to my next question. So I was I read slash listened to an interview where you talked about the International Boundary and Water Commission or the IBWC and its Mexican counterpart, the CELA, La Comisión Internacional de Limites y Aguas, working together very well without a lot of conflict. And so I thought it was interesting because when I, when people from either side tend to conceptualize the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, um, they have really strong and differing opinions, at least in terms of the politics of the region. Um, so do the IBWC and the CELA have similar political opinions on the U.S.-Mexico border? And is there space for compromises or compromise within border disputes? Yeah, the, these two agencies are, I think, some of the least known federal agencies in both the United States and Mexico, and they are certainly among the most important agencies to, to think about if you want to understand the history of the U.S.-Mexico border. I would argue even more than the Border Patrol for a variety of reasons. And I think that um, one of the things that's interesting about studying these agencies is that, like you said in your question, the, the border is typically cast in our minds as, as a political space that would generate political disputes and political problems. But I think that if I were to if, if I were to try to speak on their behalf, the IBWC and the CELA, you know, think of the border not so much as a as a political set of problems, but a practical set of problems. And I think that part of what makes the border so politicized is that this debate or this argument or this this topic that's happening at the national level in Mexico and the United States today is largely driven by people who don't really know the border are not from the border and have spent very little time on the border, which is honestly most people in both Mexico and the United States. The mm -hmm. IBWC and the, and the CELA actually have their headquarters in El Paso, Texas and Ciudad Juarez right across the border from one another, unlike all the other federal agencies that have their 
headquarters in Washington, D.C. and Mexico City. And so when they think of the border, they're thinking about very, very microcosmic kinds of issues that have to do with water treaties and river flow allocation, dam maintenance, flood control programs, and so on and so forth. And so precisely because they're in such close physical contact and such close working contact with one another, they, uh, I think they appreciate why it's important to maintain a cordial relationship and, and, and not antagonize one another because part of what helps them work hand in glove such that they do is that um, the, the, the legal structure that, that um, organizes their interaction actually mandates that all their documents be in both English and Spanish. From my experience talking to folks like the, the people who work there are all bilingual on the Mexican side and, and on the U.S. side. And historically, they've even known each other's families and they've, they've really maintained wow. a very neighborly relationship. And I think that um, I was just fascinated to learn about this in my research and, and in some conversations I've had with folks from there over the past few years. And I think it's a really important counterpoint to this idea of the border as this intensely vitriolic and, and, um, and antagonistic place, which it certainly is in certain ways, but, but oftentimes not in the context of the IBWC and the SILA. Mm-hmm. So like not to oversimplify your answer, but is part of what you're saying that like, space for compromise comes from um, actually like getting to know people on the other side or like I guess treating people as your neighbors rather than your enemies or is that just an oversimplification? I don't think that's an oversimplification. I, I, I would I would simplify it even further uh, and that is to say you know it's it's not so much a, it's not just about treating people as your neighbors. It's actually about being neighbors with them. And, th- and that's one of the advantages <laughs> that, that they have that other agencies and a lot of people don't have. And um, and I think this speaks to a, a much larger tension that I like to point out whenever I can, because I think it's an important it's an important way of understanding the border. Oftentimes, when we talk about the quote-unquote border in like the larger political uh, discourse or, or American history or Mexican history, we're, we're not actually talking very specifically about the border. We're talking about the border as a proxy for immigration law, immigration enforcement, and U.S.-Mexico relations. And so I draw a distinction, being a border dweller myself, between – the parts of the border that facilitate international trade, international migration, contraband, black markets, all that kind of stuff. And then the same places, but that are not waypoints on longer journeys, but just home for for border people. My family, depending on how you measure, has been in Las Cruces for four generations. We've been there basically since since the border was drawn. And so, and in large part, we didn't really have a whole lot to, we didn't really feel the 
those larger macroscopic border dynamics that were taking place so close to us because we were just border people. And that's a big distinction I like to make between border dwellers, border people, and then long distance migrants and long distance economic activity. And they both happen in the same place, but it's very different ways of, of understanding the meaning of, of, of what those, of what that, the, the multiple meanings that the same places can have. Mm-hmm. So then I guess kind of actually going off of that, uh, what do you think this topic informs beyond the Southwest as a project? Well, I think it, I think it informs the Mexican North, which, which is really the same place. You know, I mean, this, <laughs> this, the, the, the words that we use to describe places, I think are, are fascinating and tell us a lot about what assumptions we're making about, about political borders or environmental boundaries or a combination of the two. And so the Southwest only makes sense if your, if your compass is oriented to the United States as a political entity. And the, the desert states and a lot of the border region takes place in the Southwest of the United States. But these huge deserts, the Sonoran Desert, the Chihuahuan Desert, uh, the Tamaulipan Scrub down in, uh, in, in South Texas and, and in the Tamaulipas and Nuevo Leon, you know, these huge ecosystems cross the border and constitute much of the Mexican North. And so one of the things I, I try to do a bit in this book, and I'm definitely trying to do in my second book, is, is, is think more about the border not just as a as the southern border of the U.S. or as the northern border of Mexico, but as a series of shared ecosystems between the two countries through which a border incidentally passes, which is not to say it doesn't mean a lot and doesn't have a lot of implications, but it's to say that there's there's a there are different ways about thinking about the I want to think more expansively about what the Southwest is and what it has in common with the Mexican North. Right. So then, so you mentioned like how it informs the Mexican North, but do you see border construction projects happening north of the border? And in what ways has this border spread in terms of construction projects or in terms of the environment and or in terms of the environment? So the, you can you definitely see construction projects north of the border if by the border you mean the regulatory zone that manages the movement of people and goods across the international border so i mean and this is one of the reasons why my hometown of las cruces is not a border town but is squarely within the border region and that is there are highway checkpoints set up on every highway byway scenic road small, even dirt roads in many cases, leading out of the border region. And those checkpoints are run by federal immigration police who inspect cars and people who are well beyond the international border, but that are entering from this border zone into the into the rest of the United States. So in, in that way, that's one of the that's one of the tiers, I guess you could say, of of this very layered border in terms of its inspection. But I would also add 
that there is a lot of border construction along similar lines much farther south. And what we've seen in recent years is the Mexican government transforming, largely modeled on the U.S. model of our border, their border with Guatemala to um, to try to regulate the movement of uh, Central Americans coming into Mexico, passing through the country, coming to the United States. And so that works, depending on your point of view, as part of the U.S. regulatory apparatus and part of the Mexican regulatory apparatus. And so you see those kinds of construction projects happening on these multiple levels and multiple layers. What you also see is road construction. And this is the this is the most seemingly boring part of what I write about is just write, writing about roads. Uh, but it is, I argue, one of the most important things to understand about the history of the border. Because once you start, you can't regulate cross-border traffic without having transportation infrastructure to bring that traffic to the border to begin with. And so a huge part of border construction has been building ports of entry, ex building new ports of entry, expanding existing ports of entry, and then, of course, building more and more highways and connective tissue, as I think about it, between the two countries that connect them. And so, so in that way, too, the, the border, or at least the infrastructure that influences border dynamics, is um, expands way beyond the actual line in the sand or the river. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And then I think that this actually goes right into my um, last question, which is, was the free trade agreement an inevitable part um, effect of the creation of the border? I love this question. I, I love speculating about inevitability. <laughs> Because as a historian, it, it requires historical imagination. It requires really thinking like counterfactually about like, well, what? So what? What does inevitability mean? And and how are how is history caused? How is the the sort of the the trajectory of history caused? I would, I think, by free trade agreement, you're talking about NAFTA, yes. which went into went into effect in. In, uh, in 1994 and represented really a multi-decade set of negotiations between Mexico, the United States, and of course also Canada. Um, I, would, I would point out to listeners though, that the first free trade zone, the Zona Libre, as it was called, was started in 1840, 1858, sorry. So well over a century before what we think of as the free trade agreement. And of course, even before NAFTA, Mexico joined the GATT, the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade, which which entered it in, which which which, which helped it enter into this um, to this new new kind of market economy orientation. So there's this very, very long history of variations on free trade agreements or or, or trade organizations that Mexico and the United States have participated in. And so how I would 
rephrase your question or how I would answer it in a slightly different way is to say the free trade agreement was not an inevitable effect of the creation of the border. The free trade agreements, all of them, were the inevitable result of two capitalist countries side by side, each of whom rely very heavily on each other's resources. So the Mexican Revolution, which took place uh, from 1910 to 1920, could have, in theory, produced a, a, a far more socialist country in which the economy was controlled far more than it is by the state. But it did not. Mexico stayed capitalist for the most part through its its revolution. And I think the, the biggest piece of evidence for that is this ongoing trade relationship for a wide variety of products and obviously labor people back and forth between the two countries. And so in that broader context, the border is incidental. It would have happened anyway, regardless of where or when the border was drawn so long as the federal governments of both countries maintained an orientation toward market economies and so long as they both really needed one another for the resources in terms of labor and raw materials that both countries provided to one another. Yeah, wow, that, yeah, that totally makes sense. Thank you so much, CJ. This was really interesting. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Great job. Thank you for listening. CJ's book, Border Land, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, is available as an ebook in addition to the print version. Tune in next time for another exciting and interesting interview.